Pray with me now for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Your word, O God, let our minds meditate on it. Let our tongues speak of it. Let our hearts love it. Let our mouths preach it. Let our souls hunger for it. Let our flesh thirst for it. And our whole being desire it until we enter into the joy of the Lord, who is one and who is God, one and triune, blessed forever. Amen. A reading from the Old Testament book of Exodus, beginning with chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, and then chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Turning now to chapter 20 and continuing with verses 18 and 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Have you ever had a time in your life in which you felt like you were enveloped in absolute darkness, despair, hopelessness? Perhaps it involved a relationship, perhaps it involved your family, your kids, your parents. Perhaps it related to your career or your health. Perhaps it related to a personal struggle of yours that had overwhelmed you and overtaken you. We're going to be looking at a passage in which Jesus is preparing his disciples for just such a time as that. Uh, The passage we're going to look at in, in Matthew 17 is six days after Jesus had first begun to explain to his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things and there he must be killed. And as leaders of this religious movement, his followers, the early Christians, were understanding that Jesus wasn't just predicting his own public humiliation because the cross was a tool of publicly stripping, shaming, and humiliating someone before killing them. But they understood that Jesus was also talking about what was in store for them. 
that a day would be coming very soon in which they would be running for the hills, in which they would be fleeing for their lives, a day in which their Savior and Lord would no longer be with them and they would be alone, in which the scorn of all of the people, the hatred of religious legalists as well as, as the, the, the anger of, of, of secular authorities would all equally be turned on them and that they would be at a time in which they would experience utter darkness perhaps even hopelessness. And before he has them face that kind of life of persecution, a life on the run, a life of pain, a life of utter darkness, he instead first prepares them by taking them up onto a mountaintop and showing them something We're going to be looking at the passage, what's traditionally called the Transfiguration, in which a veil is lifted and the disciples for the first time see who Jesus truly is. It's in Matthew chapter 17. If you want to follow in the Pew Bible, we're on page 1524. You can read it, follow along with me. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. This is the Gospel of Jesus. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then they appeared before them Moses and Elijah, and they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's, it's good for us to be here, and, and if you wish, I, I'll, I'll put up three shelters, three tents, one for you, and then one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen. To him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground. They were terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. They were coming down the mountain. Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him. But they've done to him everything they wished. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then his disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. What is Jesus showing them at the top of the mountain when he is transfigured? What exactly is revealed in this thing that Christians call the transfiguration? What What do we see here? We see here two things, at least. We see here the glory of Jesus, and we see here the welcome of Jesus to sinful people like me and like you. 
first we see the glory of Jesus. This is something that Jesus has been hinting at throughout his ministry. He's been making these kind of implicit claims, suggesting what to his Jewish, fellow Jewish hearers and followers, they would have understood him to be making some pretty striking claims, the kind of claim that, that makes him e- either utterly evil or insane or, or the one spoken of through the prophet uh, you know, Daniel when he spoke of one like a son of man. Because Jesus all along has been telling people that he forgives their sins against God. Uh, it's like, God, have mercy on me. I've dishonored you with my thought life. It's been all over the place, and I blow up at my kids, and I'm a jerk, and I'm a horrible person. Please, God, God, forgive you. And Jesus says, don't worry, I forgive you. What's he saying to a Jew in which there's only one God? Shema Israel Adonai, Elohenu Adonai, God, hear, O Israel. The Shema, the creed of Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Jesus, who's claimed to be the judge of humanity at the last day when he says everybody's going to stand before him and he's going to be separating the sheep and the goats, the saved and the lost. Jesus, who claims to be able to grant eternal life at his own will. Jesus, who's already said in this gospel that he is greater than the Lord's temple. He's greater than God's house, suggesting that he is greater than the presence of God as found in the most holy place of, of Solomon's temple. To... to identify his own kingdom with God's kingdom. To a Jew, they would have heard him making pretty astounding claims. And then there are these times, even just here in Matthew's gospel, this most Jewish of gospel, written by Matthew, a Jewish tax collector who followed Jesus, to Jewish Christian audience, almost all of whom were were Hebrew of Hebrews, like himself. He he says, you know, in Matthew 2, that that the magi, the the astrologers who came to meet with Jesus when he was just a, a baby, when he was just a toddler after his birth, that they bowed down and they worshiped him. And you say, Greg, they were pagans. They were probably, you know, Parthian priests from what today we think of as Iran, what then was Parthia and, and, and later Persia, or earlier Persia. You know, you say, Greg, of, of course Jesus wasn't going to rebuke them for worshiping him because he was probably like one and a half years old and probably just learning to walk and use, you know, like very simple sentences. Uh, come on, Greg. But then, but then you see later in Matthew 14, where Jesus, you know, he, he calms the storm, he calms the water, and, and it says that those who were there in the boat, they, they were terrified, but they worshipped him, and Jesus didn't rebuke them. And then this gospel, most Jewish of gospels, is going to end in Matthew 28, up on top of another mountain, where Jesus' followers come, and it says they worshipped him, they bowed down before him. Jews didn't do that for anybody. You know, you think of the book of Revelation. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, we read some of it earlier. There's a point where John, the disciple, is, is there and he sees this angel in heaven and he freaks out and he falls on his face and bows down and the angel rebukes him and says, Do not worship me. Worship God alone, for I too am a servant. And everybody throughout this gospel is bowing down to Jesus and worshiping him and he's not rebuking them. He's encouraging them and telling them their sins are forgiven. He even identifies himself in this passage in verse 12 as the Son of Man. That's code word. He's referencing Daniel 7. 
Have you read the prophecy of Daniel 7? It was written hundreds of years earlier, talking about one who would come, a Messiah who would come, a Christ, a a great figure who would be, certainly he would be like a son of man. He would look human. He would be human, but he was something different as well. He was something not easily categorized. Daniel 7, Daniel said this. He said, in my vision at night, I looked and and there before me was one like a son of man. Jesus has just said, that's me. Coming with the clouds of heaven. And this son of man approached the ancient of days and was led into the presence of God. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all nations and people of every language did what? They worshipped him. His dominion, Daniel says, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What is Jesus saying when he calls himself the Son of Man? He is, like Daniel spoke, one that is a Son of Man, human, but something more, because he has glory. The glory of God emanates out from him. He has sovereign power like God alone has. He will rule, not just for a generation, but he will rule for eternity. He is eternal. He will never die, and all the world is going to worship him. And Jesus is saying, on top of this mountain, the one that Daniel spoke of is me. The glory of Jesus. Here, for the first time, the cover is pulled back, and what was suggested is now explicit. We see the glory of Christ. Realize what's going on here. How many of you were raised in a church? I'm putting my hand down. I did not have that privilege. Uh, But uh, if you were raised in a church, if you went to Sunday school, if you went to Bible camp and all that kind of stuff, then, then you might be recognizing what's happening on this mountain where Jesus is transfigured. You ever pick up on this? If you know your biblical history, going back about 1,500, 1,400 years earlier, where... God led his people up to a mountain, and up on top of the mountain, there was a big cloud of smoke and shiny light and fire, and there were earthquakes, and a voice spoke from inside the cloud, and somebody got really shiny. This is reenacting. Jesus is reenacting the Israelites meeting with God at Sinai. All the same elements are here. They go out into the wilderness, check. They go to the top of a mountain, check. They see fire and a bright light, check. The cloud of God, the Shekinah glory cloud of God envelops them, check. God had come down the mountain. The whole mountain shook, and there he was in the cloud, check. This is a reenactment of what happened to Israel at Mount Sinai. The people were terrified at Mount Sinai when they heard the rumblings. And here, Peter, James, and John are terrified when they hear the voice of God and the display of God's glory. Check. And then who else is there with Jesus? Elijah, that's cool. He talks about the future. But who else? Moses on top of the mountain with the glory cloud of God and the bright shining light and the loud voice. If ever there has been a reenactment, Jesus is saying, at this moment, your God is meeting with you, Israel, with you, the new Israel, you, my followers, the glory of the Lord is being displayed before you. And Moses is there. Uh, You know, remember Moses had wanted to go up on Mount Sinai. For those of you who know the biblical history, he wanted to go up the mountain because he wanted to see God. He said, God, I want to see your face. And God said, Moses, 
you're an idiot. He didn't say it in those terms, but that's it. He said, Moses, you don't understand. You're not going to survive. You can't see the face of God. You can't get full frontal assault of the glory and presence of God and survive. No man can see God and what? And live. And so God hid Moses in a cleft of rock. It's sort of like he shoved them down between the radiator and the woodwork down there, and he went by on the other side, and as he got out the door, there was a little bit of his receding glory, his hind quarters passing by, and Moses indirectly caught just a few molecules or photons of glory, and then he was shiny. His face shone with a radiance because just that indirect partial contact with the receding glory of God so irradiated him that when he got down off the mountain, they tackled him and threw a burqa on him. They made him wear a big covering because they said, you're too bright. We can't see around you. You shine too brightly, and yet there's something different going on here from what happened at Mount Sinai because Moses was hiding from the light. He was hiding from the glory. The glory shone on him, and he reflected it. But Jesus has a very different role on this mountaintop. Because Jesus isn't hiding from the glory. Jesus is the source of the glory. Jesus is the source of the light. His face shone as bright as the sun. His clothes were radiant as the light itself Jesus was at the very center. The glory of God was emanating outward from him. Jesus is the glory of God. He's showing himself, revealing his very nature as the presence of God atop the mountain. And right there next to him is Moses and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets and the greatest lawgiver, testifying that this is the one. This is the very same one that we met that we heard, that we served. This is the one. He's the force that's at work behind the constant movement of the cosmos. He's the author of life. He's the source. Elijah is right there testifying, saying, this is the one who came down as fire from heaven when I called out to God. Moses is on the other side saying, this is the one who I encountered in the burning bush when the voice of God spoke to me. He's revealed here the eternal, unknowable intelligence the absolute, the, the one from whom glory Moses hid on top of the mountain, now at the top of the mountain, test, Moses is there and he's testifying, this is the one I encountered. This is the one. He's been known by so many names. The wisdom of God, the logos of God, the word of God, the angel of the Lord, you know, the one spoken of by Daniel who walks in the presence of, of Yahweh, the God of the Jews who must be worshipped by all people whose eternal kingdom will last forever here. The disciples see what prophets groped to see, the eternal Son of Man, the Lord himself incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. Here in this transfiguration, the veil is lifted and Jesus reveals himself for who he has been all along. Here we see the reality, something unimagined, something unforeseen. God and man in Christ, the Lord God of Moses and Elijah, the one who shines at the center, the glory emanates out from him. Here we see the clearest picture yet of the deity and the glory of the Son of Man. St. Paul says in his 
letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 16 of Jesus, he says, By him all things were created. That this entity incarnate in Jesus, this eternal word of God, this wisdom of God, this angel of the Lord, this second person of the Trinity, this son of God, this is the one that when God said, let there be light. This was the word that brought light into existence. This was the word that brought about the very molecules which would carry the sound waves, which would carry the voice of God and bring about the creation of the cosmos. This is the one behind the Big Bang or whatever theory we end up grappling with. This is the one Paul says later on in that same chapter. In him, that is in Jesus, in Christ, all things hold together. You think about that picture. We tend to think like deists. Like, like 18th century philosophers, we think God is the clockwork God who makes the universe and he has a big key and winds it up and then just walks away and, and leaves it in motion. And, and what, what Paul says is that no, the God's actual intentional moment by moment willpower is keeping the universe going. Were he to blink but, or slumber for a moment, it would stop. It's what, what, what caused Jonathan Edwards to speak of the act of continual creation, that, that the universe is continually emanating outward from the glory of God as a choice of his will. Uh, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that the Son of God is the heir of all things through whom he made the universe, that he is the radiance of God's, what? Glory. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. It's like the difference in music between staccato and legato. Staccato is a momentary thing, a, a boop, and it's done. And that's not what creation is. Creation, the act of God in creating and sustaining the world is a legato. It's a sustained note. It's a boop. God continually maintaining it specifically through this figure on the mountaintop that we now know as Jesus. John 1, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made in him was life. The difference between Moses and Jesus, friends, is the difference between the moon and the sun. The moon, you see it at night, and the moon is shiny. The moon is emanating light. But whose light is the moon reflecting? It's reflecting the light of the sun. You see in the daytime at high noon in the desert, the sun, this massive, infinitely huge orb of, of nuclear explosion, and the light is shining outward from it. The light that Moses reflected was the light of Jesus, who he now joins at the top of the mountain. Think of how you would feel. I mean, I've, I've said something like this before, but imagine for a second if you've got a new friend and you're hanging out and you both run, so you decide you're going to go for a run along sort of the banks of the scenic river to pair. And so, you know, you get in your, your Subaru and the two of your, his Subaru, he drives you down there, you go down and uh, you're, uh, you're sort of there at the, the banks of the river to pair, and you go for your run along one side, you cross the little bridge, you come down the other, and at some point, you, you know, you're resting, you're ready to go home, and you're commenting on the river to pair because it's got these banks that sort of go down in the water below if it's got water in it, maybe some toilet paper. Um, 
but you're commenting on how, how nice of a slope it is to be kind of on that precipice overlooking this great chasm. And he says, yeah, you know, you ever been up real high? And then he looks at you, and his face starts to sort of radiate and glow. And then he says something in, like, Hebrew or something. You're not sure. Maybe it's Latin. You didn't study the languages. And then next thing you know, you are being propelled upward, and your bank of the river to pair is now half a mile, a mile, two miles, four miles, six miles up, and it's like the air, the oxygen has gotten thin. You can see in the far distance K2 and, 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 and you know, the Himalayas, and you're up, and the, the sun is so bright up there. The air is so thin. There's this cliff going six miles straight straight down. You look over at your friend. He's sort of not looking at you. And then he does something, and then suddenly everything is back to normal. And here's the question. Do you get back in the car with him? Or do you walk home? You look at him, and you see the spiral nebula in his eyes and the turn of the cosmos, and you ask the question that the disciples frequently asked. Do you remember when Peter first encountered Jesus, and Jesus did this miraculous catch of fish. And Peter then went up to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, come back tomorrow, and we'll catch some more fish. Except that's not what he said. He said, Lord, get away from me. I'm an evil man. Because he was terrified once he had seen who Jesus was. It's what some theologians have referred to as the mysterium tremendum, the the terrifying mystery that, that makes us both drawn to the glory of God and horrified by it. It's the history of how God is always related to his people. You think back to Isaiah 6 when the prophet Isaiah saw God in the temple with, with these angelic beings covering their faces with, with one set of wings. They each had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces because no one can look on God and live. And with two wings, they covered their feet because they were on holy ground. And as Moses was told, Moses, cover your feet. The space where you tread is holy ground. And, and they cry out night and day, holy, 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 emphasizing the absolute other of God, that he is not common, that he is not easily categorized, that we cannot comprehend him. We can only apprehend what he chooses to show us. This God that, that made Isaiah terrified, he said, woe is me, I am ruined. And then God showed him mercy, and God called him. I think of the Old Testament priests, Nadab and Abihu, who they were trained as priests. They had great responsibility to serve the Lord, and yet they offered strange fire. They offered unauthorized sacrifices at the temple, and a flame came out from the holy place, and they didn't make it. I think of Uzziah in the Old Testament, who saw the Ark of the Covenant. They were carrying it in a cart. They shouldn't have been carrying it in a cart. They were supposed to carry it on poles because no one can touch it and live. And, and here, this, this man of God saw the cart, and it was toppling, and the Ark of the Covenant was starting to slide, and so he reached out to steady it and had a heart attack that very moment. The glory of God is something that is terrifying when you truly encounter it for the first time. And it's what the disciples hear when they encounter the glory of Jesus at the top of the mountain. They realize this is not Moses. This is the one Moses reflected. And they're terrified. They're disturbed by it. It says they were afraid. You say, Greg, I don't really believe in a God like that. I don't want to believe in a God like that. Perhaps. 
But if you go outside on a sunny day and you stare intently at the sun, it's going to fry your cornea and burn your retina. And if you look at it long enough, your macula will be destroyed and you will go blind. Consider the one who sustains that sun second by second by second. Do you think he's smaller? Do you think he's less bright? Do you think his power is less than a simple star? How bright must such an entity, a creature, a thing, be? Ray Cortese talks about the weightiness of God. He says, imagine, I'll change the location to make it local, but imagine for a second, you're, you've got a cup of coffee at Caldi's, and the Caldi's Demon, the original Caldi's, the, the you know, Caldi's classic. And, uh, and you've got maybe dinner planned, you know, down the street at, you know, Demon Oyster Bar later. You've got a couple, couple minutes to kill. You walk across the street to Concordia Park with the big statue of Martin Luther at the top. And you're walking around under the trees in Concordia Park. You're just enjoying the day. The sun is shining. The weather's nice. It's really lovely. And, and then suddenly out of nowhere, out from the tree drops a giant 7,000-pound African elephant right on top of you. It's not the best illustration, but it's it's what I've got. Uh, And when that happens, your first thought is not, what was an African elephant doing in the trees in Concordia Park? In fact, you don't have a first thought, because when that African elephant falls upon you, you cannot bear its weight, and it crushes you. Kids don't worry. They don't actually live in trees. But the point is, there is a weight that you cannot carry. There is a weight that you cannot stand. And when you consider the weightiness of God, this one that Jesus is revealing himself to be, the eternal Son of God, the Son of Man, the God-Man, there is a weightiness there that you can't bear up under. I've got a slide. Do we have some of these slides? This, uh, this is a, a slide of the uh, um, observable universe. Uh, the observable universe is that slice of the universe that we can observe from the planet Earth with all of our technology. And the observable universe, scientists tell us, is, um, is flat, about 91, uh, uh, about 91 billion light years across, um, it's sort of like a, uh, a tortilla in shape, and that one direction, another direction, there's really nothing to see. But outward in a disk, we see for, you know, a, a 91 billion uh, light year wide tortilla. Um, not, not like the tortillas that Americans call tortillas that are like white and fluffy and soft, and they flop over and they're made out of flour. I'm talking about real tortillas, the kind that are corn, that have three ingredients, and that when you hold them, they're rigid, and if you fold them, they will break. They have to be softened, you know, on a a red-hot kamal with some oil for a minute or two before you can use them, because uh, it's flat. might curve a little bit, depending on the theory. Not much by observations. Uh, Now, to get a sense of the size of what Jesus is saying that he is sustaining moment by moment, right now as we speak, he's been doing this for the last 20 minutes, the observable universe, 91 billion light years across. Now, to get a sense of that, if you take the circumference of the earth, if you were to go all the way around the earth, that's just under 25,000 miles. Now, if you were to take that and stretch it out as a line, then 
you know, you, you take that and you multiply that length by seven and a half. That uh, gives you the corresponding distance of one light second. Now, you take 31.6 million of those lines end to end, and that gives you a light year. Now, if you multiply that by 91 billion, take 91 billion of those big things end to end, then that's what we're talking about as the size of the uh, visible, observable universe. We're not just talking about a nice story about a man upstairs that we tell ourselves a couple times a year to make ourselves feel good. Uh, This is either real or it's not. Next slide. Because within that are a whole lot of these, a whole lot of superheated, massive stars burning continually fire day and night. Next slide. This is the Veil Nebula. This is an actual photo. might be enhanced. It's the glowing debris from a supernova explosion. It's, it's what's left after a violent death of a massive star. And all of this, next slide, is in continual motion day and night. We're constantly moving. We're rotating. We're revolving. Our you know, solar system is also moving within that. All of this day and night. And if there is any chance that there is an intelligence behind the universe then that intelligence is infinite and immense and terrifying. You cannot control it. It is so much more than what we have dreamed of in our theology. We don't know exactly what we're dealing with here, folks. We can apprehend what God reveals of himself, but we can't comprehend him. If you think you've got your mind wrapped around God, then you've got it wrapped around an idol of your own making, folks, because we're talking about a creature that is immense, a creature that is infinite, a creature that is not a creature, that is the creator through whom all of the creatures have been made, a, a deity who is bigger than the universe that he has fashioned with his own words. Everything we know about God in his word is a bath of water, a bath of water that is life-giving and pure and trustworthy and crystal clear and absolutely reliable and absolutely true. And yet that bath of water has been taken from a vast ocean that is God, who is immense and unknowable, a God of glory. You think back to the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, how a little girl Susan is speaking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Maybe it's Lucy. I think it's Susan. And uh, Susan hears about the king of the wood. She finds out that the king of the wood is a lion. Aslan is a lion. He's the lion. He's the great lion. Ooh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. What would it be like to be there on the mountaintop and to see the glory of Jesus, to realize who it is who has extended you grace, 
who it is who has chosen you, who has loved you, who has forgiven you, who has claimed you as his own, to know who you're speaking of, to realize that this earthquake at Mount Sinai has become a human being, that the pillar of fire has put on flesh, that you're looking and standing there and looking at a living, walking, talking Chernobyl, uh, the fierce and terrifying glory of the Almighty, the infinite, come to earth. You can't be casual about Jesus because we see here the glory of Jesus. And yet, finally, we also see here the welcome of Jesus because there is something truly remarkable that happens, something that impacts your destiny if you follow Jesus, something remarkable that affects your future, your hope, and your life. Something incredible happened to these apostles on top of that mountain at the transfiguration. They didn't die. They should have. When Moses was up there, he was told you can't look at the glory of God and live. And he was hidden in a cleft of rock, and it still affected him tremendously. That's why Peter wanted to build a tent. He says, hey, let me build a tabernacle. Let me build a tent for you, and one for Elijah and one for Moses too. Don't think that Peter's up there having read, you know, a Martha Stewart living magazine, and he's getting fluffy pillows out and stuffed dates and and scented candles and making everybody hospitable. That's not what he's doing. He is motivated out of pure, raw self-preservation because he knows what's happening, and he is seeing the full force of the glory of God coming at him, and he knows he is going to die, and he wants to do the same thing Moses did. We got to get this thing into a temple where it's safe. We've got to contain this, you know, explosion before it destroys us. He's trying to build a nuclear containment vessel over Jesus. That's the tent, the tent. Moses is there. He's talking to Moses. Hey, we can build a tent. What tent? The tent of meeting. What later became the tabernacle or the temple? in which the glory of God was contained so that mediators could go in and go out and meet with God on behalf of the people so that they would not be destroyed by the brilliant radiance of God. They didn't die. They saw the glory of God far more greatly than Moses, and they did not die. What changed? Except it says here that Jesus was there And Jesus came up, and it says, Jesus touched them. And they are disciples. They are representing us. Jesus has come to you in the face of the glory of God, the one fueling the cosmos moment by moment, the infinite one, the one you cannot control. He has come to you and touched you and said what he says to them, which is the most common commandment of Jesus Christ to his followers, he commanded them, do not be afraid. Jesus has come to you. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, he's come to you and he's touched you and he's speaking to you now. Hear his voice now. He's saying, don't be afraid. I am with you. Do you realize what Jesus did for us with his glory? 
in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, just before he goes to the cross, Jesus prayed about his glory. The glory, he says, that he had set aside for our sake. And he's looking beyond the cross. And Jesus is saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What's Jesus asking? Jesus is saying, Father, I want my glory back. I have laid it aside because I have a task, because there are people I love, and I am going to the cross, and I am going to save them. I'm going to bear their sin, and I'm going to cover their shame. I am going to represent them. I'm going to defeat evil on their behalf. I'm going to secure forever their friendship and their salvation, because that is why I'm here. But when I'm done, Lord, and when I purchase this people at the cross, then I want you to give my glory back. And then Jesus continues his prayer. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What has Jesus done with his glory? But he's taken his glory, his radiance, the overflow of his perfections, his splendor, and he's taken it and he's given it to us who have no splendor of our own. The naked, the shameful, the proudful, the self-righteous, the fearful, the insecure, the cowardly, the unbelieving disciples of Jesus who believe him when he says, I save you. And he clothes you with his own glory, with the glory of God, uniting you to him and to him to the Father. Paul says in Colossians 3 that your lives as Christians are now hidden in Christ with God and what Jesus hears the Father say, you now clothed with his glory also hear the Father saying to you, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, a father who is now proud of you, who delights in you. How is it possible Because Jesus has descended the mountain. And when he descended the mountain, he went to the cross. On the mountain, you saw the glory of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus carried our shame. On the mountain, his clothes shine forth. On the cross, he is stripped naked. Before, he was there with Moses and Elijah between them. And now, he's between two thieves on a cross. Before, a bright cloud of glory shone around him, and afterwards darkness covers the land before Peter wanted to build him a temple. Afterwards, Peter ran away. All of that to break open a path of grace for you and me to pave the way for the welcome of Jesus that you might have life in him. Some of you know what it's like to live in the darkness and the hopelessness and the despair Before Jesus would let his disciples sink into that dark place, he took them up a mountain and he showed them, remember who I am and you're going to stand in my glory. A day will come when you don't see it and in that darkness, remember in the darkness what you saw in the light because a day will come when the light will switch back on, when you will see me face to face, when you will behold my glory in all of its fullness And on that day, you will not die. On that day, you will live, for I will give you life. For I have touched you. I have chosen you. I have saved you. Peter remembers it his whole life. He says in 2 Peter 1, We didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there was born such a voice to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, he says, we heard speak out of heaven when we were there with him on the holy mount. Friends, that's the promise of Jesus to you, that you're going to see his glory. And on the day you see his glory, you're going to know him, and you're going to be known by him, and you're going to be like him because you're going to see him face to face. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we cry out to you and to your Father by your Spirit that you would give us eyes to see and to savor who it is who has shown us such grace, clothing us in our shame, covering up all of our sin, forgiving us all of our sins, giving us eternal life and the certain hope and a future and the ability then to respond with lives of gratitude and hope and life. Oh, Lord, help us to savor you in this sacrament, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. And if you are ready to come to Jesus in this meal, you don't have to be a member of this church or this denomination. If you belong to the Lord Jesus by faith, then, friends, the Lord Jesus invites you because he wants to serve you. He wants to wash your feet so that you can wash other people.